Well, greetings from a beautiful uh, Lake Nojiri. The theme this month here at KUC has been our Christian heritage, and so I'd like to take up the topic of the heritage we have from the standpoint of how the biblical worldview has affected the development of our modern world. This being the 150th year since KUC was founded, we here at KUC have an exceptionally long heritage within the context of Japan, and I myself have been connected in some fashion for about one-sixth of that time. I first visited KUC about 25 years ago when I brought Hugh Ross to speak at a worship service. But then the next time wasn't until we moved down to Kansai in 2007. If I could see your hands, I'd ask for a show of hands as to how many of you were here at KUC that long ago. But it wouldn't be many as there is so much turnover in this particular fellowship of believers. I served as interim pastor for several months in 2008 until Gerard Marks could come to serve for a year or so until Bruce Badbury could come. And then until we retired and left Kansai in 2016, I served in various capacities, including guest preaching and serving on council. And now with online services, I get to contribute in this digital fashion as well. For the remainder of my message, however, I want to expand our horizons from just Kobe to the Judeo-Christian heritage as a whole and how that has affected the entire world. Likewise, I want to tie that to the plan and purpose of God in creating this world for us to live in and to develop the character God envisions for us. Among the many aspects of this we could contemplate would be the virtue of patience, particularly as it relates to patience and suffering. But I hope you won't think that this is something that applies to this sermon as well, as you patiently suffer through it. <laughs> I hope to bring you a word of encouragement based on the encouraging words that God speaks to us through this amazing letter James wrote so long ago. Two questions that arise from our scripture reading this morning are, why is it to our benefit to be patient and to trust in God's timing? And why is it that we shouldn't grumble against each other while we wait upon the Lord? <clears throat> As we begin our thinking concerning these questions, I want to first introduce the concept of worldview and what that means. I would imagine that most of you have at least heard the term before and, and have a vague understanding of what it means. Basically, one's worldview is the physical framework one subconsciously uses to try to make sense of the world as one experiences it. It is literally one's view of the world. Everyone has a worldview, even if they are not conscious of what that worldview is and wouldn't be able to explain what makes up their worldview to somebody else. You cannot help but have some sort of organizing principles you use to put together your understanding of what reality is. This, of course, begins from birth, and maybe even before, and gr gradually develops and gets more sophisticated as one matures. And yet, even for those of us who are the most careful thinkers, there will always be a certain amount of inconsistency in one's worldview, since no human has a full understanding of reality. Likewise, it is important to note that while it is not a simple thing to do, one can even radically change one's worldview to something that more consistently explains the world as it really is. That is, in fact, what Christian conversion is, namely when you first accept Christ into your life 
as your Lord and Savior, your worldview undergoes a radical transformation, or at least it should. Of course, that is something that in reality takes a lifetime to accomplish, as we all have aspects of a worldly worldview that remain attached to and often compromise a truly biblical worldview. When you really get down to the basics, in the ancient world, there were only two fundamental worldviews. The biblical worldview, and, and what I term, for lack of a better label, the ancient worldview. There were, of course, many variations of the ancient worldview, but they all held in common the idea of the continuity between the physical world and the world of the gods. All natural phenomena, as well as all the events that occur in human society, were mere reflections of the world of the gods, and are controlled by the gods or by events that occurred in the unseen realm of the gods. All ancient worldviews, other than that of the ancient Hebrews, were polytheistic in orientation, and even the ancient Hebrews often fell back into that polytheistic mode in their struggle to come to terms with the biblical worldview God was revealing to them through his prophets. It was only the worldview revealed in the Bible that held that there is only one actual God, and that that one God is utterly transcendent from the world he created. Of course, God is everywhere present in the universe he created, but he is in no way confined to or limited by that creation. God is not the cosmos, and the cosmos is not God. God has created everything in the physical realm for a purpose. And unlike all other ancient worldviews, which viewed time as cyclical, analogous to the, to, the, to the cycles of nature, the biblical worldview sees time as a linear progression of cause and effect moving towards the goals God has foreordained. The various creation myths of the ancient Near East all involve fanciful tales of primordial chaos monsters producing various gods and goddesses that in turn produce humans and brought a degree of order to the world they lived in. It is common today to hear the biblical creation story being referred to as myth, and I suppose that if you have a broad enough definition of that word, I don't particularly object to the term. In fact, the Japanese word for myth, shinwa, literally means God talk, and in that sense, Genesis is definitely shinwa, God talk. Nevertheless, when we use the English word myth today, we generally mean a made-up story with no basis in reality. And Genesis is certainly not that. The Genesis story is fundamentally different from any of the creation myths that surrounded ancient Israel. It is true that it employs various myth-like symbols, such as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. But Genesis portrays creation in an entirely different way to that of any of the other ancient stories. For one thing, Genesis portrays creation in terms of specific events in real space and time, as opposed to a once-upon-a-time type of non-historical primordial world. Genesis was meant to be understood as a real place somewhere in the general region of the, of the Near East, or even Northeast Africa, though we cannot, be for, uh, we cannot know for sure where it was in terms of modern geography. And while there are certain aspects of the story that are a bit difficult for us to understand in terms of modern science, the entire creation scenario is remarkably consistent with what we know to be true from the study of the natural world. 
most notably, of course, is the biblical claim that God created the, the entire universe out of nothing as he spoke it into existence at the beginning of time as we know it. The science of the early 1900s was basically saying the same thing as the ancient creation myths, in the sense that the science of that day held that the universe was eternal and that our world today came out of pre-existing matter, though of course without the various mythological chaos monsters, etc. Now, however, we know that the Bible had it right all along. There was a definite beginning to space and time and all the matter and energy it contains as it simply came into being out of non-existence for no discernible reason, that is, no physical reason that we can measure or understand scientifically. That, of course, is the essence of the Big Bang Theory for the creation of the universe. And if there was a Big Bang, which all the evidence points to, then it follows that there had to be a Big Banger, some entity transcendent to our universe that is powerful enough to explain the effect. Only the God of the Bible fits that description. Likewise, recent theories for the origin of modern humans are coming surprisingly close to that of the Genesis story, and the two progenitors of all humans are even referred to as the mitochondrial Eve and the Y-chromosomal Adam. <clears throat> While there is a still a deep commitment to naturalism on the part of those who control much of the scientific enterprise, which, by the way, requires them to believe that we gradually evolved from previously existing animals. The actual evidence is far more easily explained by the biblical model, namely that modern humans suddenly appeared on the scene quite recently, on the order of 50 or 100,000 years ago, somewhere in the general region of the Middle East or Northeast Africa. <clears throat> As we think about the legacy left to the world by the biblical worldview, I cannot stress enough the importance of this basic difference between the biblical worldview and all other worldviews, be they some form of ancient polytheism or modern scientific naturalism. We can only speculate as to, the, as to how different our world would be today if the biblical worldview had never appeared on the scene. When you consider the various institutions and concepts that require the biblical worldview to even get started, the differences are profound indeed. The historical evidence proves that much of what we take for granted in the modern world owes its genesis to Genesis and the rest of the Bible. Several years ago, Rodney Stark, a social scientist from Baylor University, wrote a really excellent book entitled The Victory of Reason, how Christianity led to freedom, capitalism, and Western success. And it persuasively lays out the evidence to support his conclusion, with which I wholeheartedly agree. He states the following, Christianity created Western civilization. Had the followers of Jesus remained an obscure Jewish sect, most of you would not have learned to read, and the rest of you would be reading from hand-copied scrolls. Without a theology of a committed to reason, progress, and moral equality, today the entire world would be about where non-European societies were in, say, 1800. A world with many astrologers and alchemists, but no scientists. A world of despots, lacking universities, banks, factories, eyeglasses, chimneys, and, and pianos. A world where most infants do not live to the age of five and where many women die in childbirth. 
a world truly living in dark ages. The modern world arose only in Christian societies, not in Islam, not in Asia, not in a secular society, there having been none. And all the modernization that has since occurred outside of Christendom was imported from the West, often brought by colonizers and missionaries. Needless to say, his conclusions are rather controversial, but he has the evidence to back them up. To give you an idea about how that works, let's take the example of the birth of modern science, upon which rests basically all our modern technology and the society it supports. Secular scientists may suppose that their work can get along just fine without any reference to God or the biblical worldview. And in the sense of doing their everyday science, that is generally tr true as far as it goes. But the problem with that way of thinking is that science itself could never have even gotten started without the prerequisite of the biblical worldview, namely the understanding that the natural world is governed by rational laws instituted by a single creator. All other worldviews believe that natural phenomena are controlled by various gods or are the result of events that happen in the unseen realm of the gods. Thus, the idea that humans would actually decipher any laws that govern the natural realm and use those laws to understand nature and predict what might happen in the future simply did not occur to anybody outside of biblical revelation. Such an idea was antithetical to their basic worldview. In the biblical worldview, with the exception of the times when God miraculously intervenes from beyond space and time, cause and effect are entirely within this world and thus can be studied and understood. In all other ancient worldviews, however, cause and effect are separated. The effects are what we see in this world, but the causes are outside of this world, in the unseen world of the gods, and thus they are forever beyond our understanding. This, of course, was true in ancient Japan as well, and I like to use the example of the weather, which in Japanese is the word tenki. This word is made up of two characters, ten, for the heavens or gods, and ki, meaning feelings. Thus, the concept behind the creation of this word to express the concept of weather was the feeling of the gods. And that was based in the idea that the weather is controlled by how the weather god feels at any particular time. Storms or other unpleasant weather is the result of the weather god being angry about something or because of its struggle with other gods. And so the only thing one can do is to try to placate the angry gods with sacrifices and magical ceremonies, such as rain dances, etc. Perhaps this past summer, the weather god had too much sake and got drunk, and that's why we had all this rain. Anyway, it doesn't take much insight to see how such a worldview would short-circuit modern science from even getting off the ground. And this is why ancient societies outside of Christendom never developed scientific thought. It wasn't until the 16th century in Christian Europe that all of the prerequisites for the birth of modern science came together, primary of which was having a biblical worldview. That is why essentially all the early scientists were devout Christians. Science has tended to abandon its biblical roots, but that is a fairly recent development foisted on society by those who simply don't know their true history. 
Well, up to now, this sermon has perhaps sounded a bit like a university lecture, and so I want to bring it back to our scripture reading and how the words of James apply to us today, especially from the standpoint of worldview. Coming back to the question I posed at the beginning of this sermon, why is it to our benefit to be patient and to trust in God's timing? The key to understanding that is in the biblical worldview. Why is it that we even exist in the first place? It is because God created us in His image with a specific goal in mind. We are eternal beings who will exist eternally after our physical lives are over. Our time here on earth is for the purpose of preparing us for what God has in mind for our eternal lives in the new heavens and the new earth that he will create once the purpose of this universe is completed. An atheist looks at life very differently, since if there is no God, then this physical life we briefly possess is all there is. Once you die, that's the end of your conscious existence. And so getting your fair share out of life is of utmost importance. Likewise, the things that happen to you in your brief time on earth take on supreme importance. From the standpoint of eternal life, however, whatever happens to you in this short period of time we have seems rather minor. But if that is all there is, then those events become paramount indeed. Now, I don't mean to imply that the biblical worldview is saying that the events that happen to us in life and our response to those events aren't important, for they certainly are. It's just that we can have a very different perspective on them from that of someone who thinks that this life is all there is. Could an atheist Bible, if there were such a thing, say, be patient and stand firm? Certainly not in the sense it's meant here, nor could it add the reason, because the Lord is coming near, since there is no Lord to come near in the first place. In that worldview, it all depends on you, and with so much outside of your personal control, it's all a crapshoot anyway. Life is a lottery, and it's not fair. Bad things happen, and that's just tough luck. In fact, the problem of evil and suffering is the argument atheists bring up as their prime reason for rejecting the kind of God the Bible portrays. They claim that if such an all-powerful, loving God really existed, he wouldn't allow such evil and suffering to take place. Well, we don't have time to go further into that issue this morning, and so I want to focus back in on what being patient really means. We started out with the contrast between the biblical monotheistic worldview and the array of polytheistic mythical worldviews that make up everything else in the ancient world. To this, I added the relatively recent atheistic worldview as a third option. In fact, those three are the only possible option when it comes to the existence of God or gods. Either there are none at all, there is one and only one God, or there are gods in the plural. So let's look at what patience means from these three general perspectives. From an atheistic perspective, being patient is strictly pragmatic. You exercise patience only as a tool to help you get what you want. It is not a virtue to develop, along with the other fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5, namely love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, uh, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Since your few years here on earth are all there is, 
you focus in on your wants and desires. There is no incentive for self-sacrifice since that is merely subtracting from your fair share of life. An atheist may claim that he gets satisfaction from sacrificing for the good of others, but to do so is to borrow from the biblical worldview, since such a virtue has no rational basis in an atheistic worldview. On the other end of the scale, patience from a polytheistic standpoint is mere fatalism. Hinduism is a good example of this. One's position in life, what, what caste you were born into, and what happens to you in life are due to your karma from previous lives. And so being patient means to just accept your status in life and make the best of it without trying to change it. Ethics are entirely relative, as a multiplicity of gods makes it impossible to believe that the world has a, an ethical foundation. Actions that would be pleasing to one god are almost certain to be displeasing to some other god, as the various gods have different wishes and desires. Since no one god brought the universe into existence, no specific god's character is reflected in the universe. How very different both of these are from the biblical worldview. God's very nature is reflected in what he has made, and it is this that is the basis for ethics and virtue. The primary reflection is in, human, is in human beings, as we are the only creatures God created in God's image. When it comes to patience, it is God who is our model. How incredible is the patience with which God treats humanity? The various gods conjured up by rebellious humans are notably impatient, just like we humans are. But God showed not only his incredible love, but also his incredible patience for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is the primary reason we should also be patient. Not only do we love because God first loved us, but we are also to be patient with each other and not grumble against each other because God was first patient with us. When James used the word grumble against, he likely had in mind the grumbling against God by the Israelites during their wilderness experience. If they had been ready to enter the promised land right after coming out of Egypt, God would not have led, uh, God would have led them straight up to a Canaan, but they weren't ready. And so God first had to teach them uh, dependence on him through 40 years of wandering through the desert. And that includes patience. In a similar way, God is preparing each of us in this life for the life he has waiting for each of us in his eternal kingdom. Being patient and waiting upon the Lord are among the many virtues God, in his patience, is trying to develop in each of us. There's so much more we could delve into this morning, but our time is up. And so I want to close with the words James records after he mentions the Old Testament prophets and Job as examples of patience and suffering. He closes that paragraph with these words. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Boy, do I need to hear that over and over. It is that compassion and mercy that results in God being so patient with me, a weak and impatient human being. I think I'm a more patient person than I was when I was younger, but I still have such a long way to go. And I would imagine that many of you feel the same way, not only about me, but about yourselves as well. So as we close, let's, hope, let's hold on to these words. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. That is part of the very character of God. 
and it is what he is trying to develop in each of us as well. As our closing hymn, I've chosen, Be Still, My Soul. You'll notice that in, in the very first verse, after declaring that the Lord is on thy side, it encourages us to bear patiently the cross of grief and pain, leave to thy God to order and provide. What we need, of course, is to learn the virtue of patience in general as we learn to wait upon God and his timing for his great plan for each of us. And we can do that because the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. May you all experience that compassion and mercy as you allow God to develop patience in your soul, along with love, joy, and the other fruit of the Spirit. Of the Spirit. God's richest blessings on each of you.